1: Welcome to Front Office Features, a special edition, special guest right here in my backyard, David Cohen, Director, Member Experience and Retention at the Boston Celtics. David, welcome to Front Office Features.
0: Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. I am uh, a listener of the show and I'm I'm happy to be on and uh, hopefully share some insight with your listeners today.
1: Well, that's why we brought you on, you're a listener, so you get preferential treatment. That's what we do. We bump, we bump people to the front of the line as long as you're listening to us, uh, so, so we must be doing something right. But uh, David, uh, what th- does that even mean, Director of Member Experience and Retention at the Boston Celtics?
0: Sure, sure. So yeah, I'm the Director of Member Experience, at the, uh, director of member experience and Retention at the Boston Celtics. Uh, I lead our Member Experience team, uh, where it's, I would call us a sales-slash-service hybrid department. And really what we're responsible for is um, providing exceptional service, a world-class personalized service to our season ticket member base. They are our most loyal fans, um, our most important stakeholders. And really our goal is to drive revenue uh, year over year by retaining that base, um, that customer base, and also drive some uh, additional incremental revenue by offering enhancements to the season ticket membership. Um, that we're offering them. I myself I, uh, I lead the team of sales re- uh, sorry service reps and service managers and I develop all of uh, I develop our vision um, and all the strategies, all of our campaigns. Um, I uh, develop the membership platform itself and you know uh, retention is a, a key business initiative at the Celtics so, I'm very fortunate that there's a lot of collaboration uh, pretty much with every other department um, to help us uh, exceed our goals every year.
1: So let's go on the Wayback Machine and how you, you got here. So you, you, you started as an intern at Rob's current organization, my, <laughs> my partner is at, at the Paw Sox, yeah. and then went right to the Celtics. What did you do when you first joined the Celtics?
0: So, uh, when I first joined the Celtics, I was an inside sales rep, which is a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a way into the business. Uh, a lot of people come up through inside sales. We don't have an inside sales program anymore, but most teams do. And, and really what it is, it's just entry level. It's a contracted position. So it's not full-time. It's not guaranteed. Um, you typically it's, you know, around a nine month program and you're really, you know, again, It might be different now with technology, but when I started back in uh, 06, 07, uh, it was was basically uh, dial for dollars. It was, here's a list of random, you know, leads. I'm putting air quotes around that because it was basically the yellow pages Uh, and just, you know, make a hundred calls a day and and try to sell them season tickets. And it's grueling. There's a lot of rejection, Um, but it's, you know, it's a way to uh, get your foot in the door and start building up those skills. And, and for the company, it's, it's a gr- it's great because you essentially get to look at someone for nine months and see if they have what it takes to become a full-time member of the team. So um, it, it's, it's a tough job, you know, it's one of the toughest jobs in the industry. So, you know, for the people that are out there doing that um, you know, good, good for all of you.
1: You just gave me flashbacks, David. Because (laughs) when I first started selling tickets for the Devils, I remember I just you just triggered something in my mind with technology. Our seat locations used to be on note cards. Yeah, we used to have to go into like the note card holder and pull out the seat location and go to my boss for approval to sell said seats. And they wouldn't let you sell any seat you wanted to. You had to get approval to sell the set of seats that you them on the hook for
0: yeah i mean i remember like again there was no crm there was no technology they would come by you know someone would come by your desk with you know just a, a packet of paper and drop it on your desk and there'd just be a bunch of names and numbers on it and, and you would just start calling the person and you know again this is oh 0- oh six oh seven this is pre kevin garnett and the celtics were you know not a hot ticket at all we that year we were on an 18 game losing streak at one point and the biggest hope was winning the lottery to get greg odin or kevin Durant. So. It was very, very hard to convince someone to buy tickets for for one game, let alone, uh, you know, a mini plan or season tickets.
1: <laughs> well, you 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 had a short live in the inside sales department, so you were doing something right because you got promoted to a full time account executive. Correct.
0: Yes, yes, I did. Uh, I want to say it was. Pro- I started inside sales in October, and then I want to say in the springtime I became an account executive. <laughs>
1: So how did you how did that process happen? Because I think a lot of young folks out there are always like, oh, I I was here for a couple months. I should get promoted now because I did a good job. But that's quick, right? Seven months is not the the norm. What did yeah. you do to showcase your skills? I mean, you've been with the Boston Celtics now for almost 15 years. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I started in 06. I'm still here. This is my 15th season. I think that, again, a lot of it is timing too. Um, you know, you you could be – you, you can excel in inside sales, and if the company uh, doesn't have any spots, you know, a good company will try to find you a spot somewhere. But so it was a combination of timing. Um, we were looking to grow our sales team, uh, and just I think my work ethic, and, and that's what it was in Pawtucket too. I, I would just you know I may I, I was not at the top of the leaderboard because the inside sales class actually started in June, and I came in in October. Because a few people had left and they, and they brought in a few more people. So I was behind. I, you know, as far as like the numbers go, I was always you know, behind because I, I was coming in a few months late. But it was just really um, outworking everybody, I think. Um, always, you know, you can control your activity. Uh, you can't necessarily control the end result. But, but when we did have inside sales and I, and I was no longer in that position and I was, um, you know, an account executive or premium, I would always go talk to, you know, the new class when they would come in and try to give them some advice. And one thing I would always say, and t- typically the class would be, you know, 10 to 12 people, let's just say. One of the things I would always say is, look, whoever in this room right now finished, you know, is number one in output. I guarantee you're going to be in the top three as far as like overall results go. I, I'm not going to guarantee you're going to be one because, you know, there is some luck, you know, someone might call in, you know, you, you answer the phone and it's a courtside sale, whatever. But, but if, you, if you lead an activity, you are going to be one of the top three people in this, in, in this group of 12. And it always holds true. So I think you just have to focus on what you can control and that's your output.
1: Which is literally one of the mantras we talk about is effort. you can control effort and attitude. A lot of the other things is, quite frankly, luck. The cards fall as they may, yeah. and you're, you're kind of beholden to the other people making a decision based on what you've put in front of them. You can only go so far to make them say yes, right? It's just kind of yeah. part of the, the nature of the business. But, I mean, you you, you were in an account executive role for almost seven years. You ended up being number one in the department four years in a row. Uh, You were clearly doing something right. And and to to your point, work ethic is usually what rises to the cream of the crop from when it comes to ticket sales. So as you progress through the organization, you then moved into premium sales. Can you kind of just because I, I think a lot of people don't really understand the difference of what you can do on a day to day in a ticket sales role. What's the difference between premium sales and what you were selling as an account executive?
0: So with pre- so premium sales would be more of uh, a licensed product. It's typically a multi-year deal. Think about like a suite license, a club seat license, courtside seats. They're high-end products. And you're typically targeting businesses, more, more B2B selling um, versus business to consumer. Um, when you're an account executive and you're just selling season tickets in the upper, lower bowl you know, or suite rentals, it, it's a lot more transactional. Um, the sales just happen quicker. And when you get to premium, it's just a longer sales cycle. I would say the main difference is just like your pit, your pitch, you know, you're, you're pitching it for their business because it's going to help improve their bottom line, um, versus, you know, customer it's, it's, it's likely for pleasure. Uh, I think that, um, one of the, you know, like as far as day to day goes in the premium role you spent a lot of time prospecting. We didn't really get leads. Um, it was a lot of like self prospecting on LinkedIn or, or uh, you know, via Zoom lists. We weren't targeting. You know, we weren't getting inbound calls, and we weren't, you know, going after people who may have come out to a few games or clicked on an email or anything like that. So typically, the, you know, it it, it wasn't maybe is it wasn't maybe the quantity of the output. In the premium role it was more the the quality of the output and the more time you spent prospecting and, and trying to find um businesses that you could reach out to
1: it's amazing what you just kind of touched on and because i mean you and i both luckily work for two of the most iconic franchises in, in our respective leagues yeah. And people are like, oh yeah, people just must be knocking down your door every day to buy something. I'm like, if that was the case, I'd have a much easier job. Nobody's calling us, right? You're, you're doing the work no matter where you work, whether it be in Boston or Kansas City. And it's there's no such thing as a layup. It's it's really hard. And you're, you're not selling something that anyone really needs. No one needs a suite. No one needs a sponsorship, right? You're, you have to actually do the work and convince those people this type of investment, which isn't small, is going to help them. And I think one of the things that people also probably don't realize is that the Bruins own the garden, right? Yes. Yeah. So the challenges that I I obviously know what comes along with what you guys deal with, but how do you overcome some of those things when you actually don't have full control of a building?
0: Yeah. Before I touch on that, I just, to your point, um, you know, I, I think there is, uh, you know, people think the Boston market, its it's so easy to sell, but there's a couple of things. There's a lot of competition. You know, you have the Red Sox, the Patriots, the Bruins, the Celtics. So, so you have a lot of competition versus maybe a place like Utah or Kansas City, and um, and uh, the the expectations are higher for the team. You know, way if, higher. If it, yeah, they're way if higher. Not, if the team's not winning, like legit winning the championship or in contention, it's like. You know it, it's tough to sell. Whereas if you're in a, a, another market, if you're a playoff team, it's like it's it's the best thing in the world. So I think there's there's different challenges with obviously small market versus large market market. But you know, not owning the garden, uh, that's definitely uh, a little bit of a challenge. But I think um, you know because we're we're not really creating the um, the service experience, so to speak when when we when we sell. A premium product that person is being handed over to someone outside of our organization. Um, So, you know, we just have to really build that relationship with the garden. We have a very strong relationship with TD Garden, but just really be extra communicative and be on the same page and make sure, you know, what we're promising our people when we're selling a a premium, a licensed product, that they are able to deliver on that product for us. Because ultimately, if they're not, then they're going to come back to us. Um, and, and ask what the deal is with that.
1: Yeah, no, and it's it's one of the things that I think a lot of folks in in sports don't always realize that not every team owns their building, their stadium, their arena, and you're kind of beholden from a customer service, even from a concession standpoint, right? Ninety-eight percent of the folks don't own their concessions unless you're legends, yeah. and you're you're really from all the touch points that happen with your client, you're kind of taking a leap of faith when you turn them over to somebody else.
0: Yeah, absolutely you know that's it's always a challenge you know because uh you know on game night any anyone you see at TD Garden is not like a Celtics employee so our members you know we're putting a lot of trust into the the TD Garden staff and they do a great job at what they do but it is a bit out of our control what the guest experience is going to be like uh during a game you know when they're at TD Garden
1: so you're, you're in the premium role for about almost four years and now you're going into the, the current role. We talked about director of member experience and retention. How did that happen? So you were clearly on the sales side every day, um, going out, hitting the pavement, trying to generate revenue. Was this a new role that was created in the organization or did you, what did it open up and then would they, were you approached or did you go, yeah. did you apply for it? Uh,
0: so good question. I, I just, you know. I was obviously, you can see, um, based on my, my LinkedIn, I was in sales for quite some time, and I just felt like I had really done all there was to to do in sales, and I, I was I really wasn't feeling fulfilled anymore. I knew I needed a new challenge in my career, and you know I thought about maybe uh, trying, you know, my hand in the, the partnership side, um, but really what I wanted to do was lead a team. I wanted to lead lead a department, and. Uh, I started at, we didn't have any opportunities at the Celtics. And I started to look, uh, you know, for probably about a year, I started looking outside of the organization because I was just ready for that change. Um, And just, you know, nothing matched up. And then unbeknownst to me, the director of member experience and retention uh, before me uh, left unexpectedly. And the position opened up. I wasn't approached, but I uh, put together a really good business plan, I think, and I presented it to the folks that were hiring, and they they liked what they saw and they and they bought it and uh they offered me the position.
1: Look at you using your sales skills to go get a job internally. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so what you just mentioned. The last piece of that is 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 huge. Uh, you actually put together a business plan rather than just say, Hey, I've been here. This is what I've done. You, 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 you laid out how you were going to be successful mm-hmm. and how you were going to do the job. What was in that business plan?
0: It was just so it, a lot of research went into it. Honestly, I, I, uh, you know, I had listened to, I, I sought out a lot of podcasts, um, that featured leaders in the industry. And I listened to those. I, networked within the nba so i I called up several nba teams and talked to their director of retention and kind of picked their brains and asked them how they ran their department and so forth so a lot of research went into it a lot of thought went into it but it was really just outlining um my vision for the department how i was going to run the department um how i could be an asset to the department based on my sales background at the time uh you know, our retention team was like solely focused on the service aspect. And there was no, there was no focus on upselling our current member base, you know uh, what we call it fishing where the fish are. So, you know, I use that to my advantage saying, Hey, I have this strong background. We're leaving a lot of money on the table right now. So that was part of my is It was the revenue that could be generated off the current book. Um, and just kind of outlined uh, my vision, my cult, you know, the culture I envisioned and, um, you know, 30, 60, 90. And here we are.
1: Did anyone else do that? Do you know?
0: I don't believe so. No.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the biggest pieces of advice we try and give folks is you got to separate yourself from the pack, right? The resume sure. goes so far, your experience goes so far. What's going to make the hiring person go, wow, this person gets it? And this person wants it versus just saying they want it.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. That's one of the things I always uh, tell people. You know, for it, it depends the role you're going into. Obviously, if you're going into like a, a leadership role or a mid-management role, a business plan might make sense because you can you can definitely outline that vision and um, you know how you're going to get there, paint that picture. If it's more of a you know, account executive um, service rep type of role, probably not necessary on like a business plan, but a 30, 60, 90, I think uh, is, is even impressive to bring to the interview.
1: For sure. No, it just says like, look, I I can even outline on a document that I understand this business. I understand what's going to be expected of me. And this is how I'm going to be successful. It's just, it's, it's just, in my mind, when people give me those type of things to react to, it's just a game changer of term, immediately feel better about this candidate. 100%. 100%. So you mentioned another key, a key fun buzzword lately, culture. Uh, in terms of the culture that you were going to set in your department, but the Celtics have a long standing in terms of here in, the, in our backyard, known as one of the better places to work in sports, um, which always starts at the top. So wh- what, is, what do you do in your department to set the tone, to make people feel welcomed and also for, to set them up for success?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, so I think it's twofold when you're talking about culture, it's the people that you have in in your department, in their character, in kind of their core values. Um, But it also requires the leader to um, create an environment um, that's going to foster a a good culture. The the people have to bring it to life, um, but you have to kind of put, you you know, set the tone for that environment. And I think that when I am looking to build my culture, I'm trying to answer a few different questions. Um, The first one is... You know, is this team connected? And the team has to be connected. So I try to foster relationships. I try to do a bit of team building. Um, but more importantly, uh, I outline a vision and a common purpose. Of you know, this is this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get here. This is how you are part of this 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 thing that's bigger than all of us. So that's how we, we want it. We want to make sure the team is connected. Uh, the second question you know does the leader care about me you know does my leader care about me so I, I always want my team to know that I always have their back I'm always looking for their out for their best interest and the relationship quite honestly uh, can't be all about work you know you want to know what's going on in their personal life uh, especially during time times like these but you re- you really have to show that you care about them. Um, I heard a quote actually on a podcast this week. I I forget the person's name, Um, but he said, he said, uh, nobody cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care, which I thought um, a little bit. Um, But yeah, so you have to, when you're in that department, when you're on that team, you have to feel that your leader is going to, that your leader cares about you. Uh, The other thing is, is there a future here for me or is this a dead end job? So you have to create an environment where people feel like they are developing and where they're learning and where there's opportunity for growth. And sometimes that's hard, especially at a place like the Celtics, because there's not a lot of turnover, but you have to kind of keep those people growing and, you know, hopefully something opens up for them, whether it be internally. And if not, you know, we try to get them to where they need to be externally. And then the last thing you want to answer in your culture is, You know, are we safe? Is this a safe environment? And what I mean by that is, can I make mistakes? Like, or are there going to be like major repercussions? It's okay to make mistakes. We learn from those mistakes. And, you know, there's no finger pointing or anything like that. So that's like kind of the environment that I I think, you know, those are some of the elements that go into creating that culture. But again, it's on the people. It's it's all about the people. Are the people going to bring this thing to life or not?
1: No. Yeah. I, I love the empowering your employees to to make a mistake and not feel like they have to walk on eggshells because everyone makes mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. Like you said, just learn from that and don't make the same mistake twice. Exactly.
0: exactly.
1: So what can you, can you kind of just dive into what a day-to-day looks like for someone on your team? What are they doing in, in that role on the, in the service and, and member experience department?
0: Yeah. So it, it really changes, I guess, depending on upon the time of the year and depending on the campaign. Quite honestly, um, you know, we there's there's part of the year when it's when we're, we're in full out renewal, you know, renewal campaign. So it's a lot of it's like they almost turn into a, a salesperson to a certain degree. Uh, so I always say, um, you know. S- s- uh, it's easier to retain your customers, yes, but sometimes it's tougher to retain your customers because they've experienced the product. So they, they might know the flaws of the product or what doesn't work for them, whereas a new person off the street, uh, it, it's, you know, it's season tickets. Great. This is going to be a great idea. And, and they don't know maybe you know, some of the responsibilities that come with it. So renewing people um, is definitely a sales job for them. Uh, the other part is just touch points you know, engaging with our season ticket members. And we really just, we want to, ultimately we want to learn as much as possible about our customers, learn what they like, learn what they don't like. Um, That way we can get, that way we can improve our membership model and we can get them, uh, you know, we can get them involved in opportunities that that mean most to them. So it's a lot of getting to know the customers, building the relationships, We have we have touch points throughout the year that um, we do strategically, whether it's inviting people to events, whether it's sending out uh, holiday cards, whether it's, uh, you know, a check in. Uh, So it's 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 touch points throughout the year. But it's also I also have them working on, you know, side projects based on their passions. So, you know, uh, right now we have uh, three people on my team planning out um, the launch of a potential, uh, kids membership, you know, similar to what you guys do over at the Red Sox with Red Sox nation. Uh, so, so three people on my team are kind of putting that business plan together right now. Um, we have someone on my team, uh, that's, that's looking into potentially launching, uh, an Instagram account for our season ticket members. So just different, you know, based on, based on their, um, their passions, uh, I always say, like, look, if you have an idea that that you're passionate about, but it's going to also make our department better, our team stronger, it's better for our customers. Pitch that idea to me, and if we run with it, you're gonna you're gonna be able to take the reins on that, and that's yours. So I really put a lot on them to um, do more outside of the day to day.
1: I love that, and then in, in terms of just from your, your years of experience in, in this business, um, what are other things that you've seen from employees that have like separated themselves, like presenting business plans, coming up with ideas? Like what can you, the, a young person in this industry be doing on a, on not just a day-to-day basis, but on a holistic basis throughout their time to, to make these impressions on the senior team and the executive team to, to, to gain more responsibility?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so what I would say, you know first and foremost is presenting ideas is coming up with ways that you can improve whatever you're doing, improve the product. And you know, like there we come up with many more ideas than than are implemented, but it's the people um, that that continue to pitch, continue to pitch, continue to pitch um, that that are likely to move ahead. I, I just think like you have to be you have to be driven to really become an expert in this craft. So that might be, um, you know, that might be doing whatever you need to do day to day, but how are you also getting better? You know, how are you enriching yourself? Are you, um, you know, are you, are you networking outside of the industry? Are you, are you, are you learning ideas from other professionals? Are you reading books? Are you listening to podcasts? I think that the attributes of a good rep, you know, work ethic, um, buying into the vision, trusting your leader, helping your leader, um, being curious about things, uh, grit. You know, I think, I think the the reps that have, that have grit, um, they're the most successful and that's really, you know, working as hard as you can for a long period of time towards a goal. Um, and then being coachable, you know, um, being willing to be coachable, I, I, I think, uh, goes a long way.
1: Yeah, that's so. What What do you mean by that? Because that term gets thrown around a lot. So, when, yep. when you say coachable, what what type of response should a person be giving to their boss when they get feedback?
0: Yeah. So I think that it's two things. It's 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 trusting in in your leadership, obviously. Um, but I also think that it is. Are they embracing? maybe, uh, constructive criticism, like how are they taking that constructive criticism? And I think the, the people that can embrace that and know that it's coming from a place of care because you want to see the person get better. I think those are the most coachable people, um, be, you know, just being open-minded to, to that stuff.
1: You know, we, I, I I mean, even for you and I have been in this business long enough now, I tell everyone I'm still learning. And if you're not willing to open your mind to getting better, then what are you doing on a day to day basis? The whole point of it is to keep getting better and grow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, transition a little bit. I mean, you reached out in regards to you've been getting more involved on the career advice thing, which is, makes you a perfect guest for front office features. And yeah. what are some of the common pitfalls or mistakes on twofold? One, that when people are applying for a full-time role with you that you see in an interview process to meet you like, oh no, why did you just say that? And secondly, <laughs> in an informational interview, which people I think sometimes treat as kind of just too casual per se and don't look at it as an opportunity to impress. Like what are some of the things that you see that make you go, oh, please don't say that anymore yeah. and, and ever don't ever say that again in your next interview? Yeah.
0: So one of the, one of the questions I ask at an interview... Uh, is describe to me in your own words, the job that you're applying for right here. Cause I just want to see how, how well they understand, you know, like, like how well did they actually read that description?
1: That's a you great know? question. I've never uh, asked That's a
0: great question. And, <laughs> and you know, like more often than not, I mean, we're screening these people, obviously we're not interviewing everybody. So more often than not people, you know, hit it at least, you know, pretty close to what it is. But every now and then you get someone who's kind of all over the place. And to me, you know, that's a red flag. So that, I cringe with that uh, when, when that happens, certainly.
1: <laughs> Never a good if they don't know exactly what they're applying for. No, not, not, a good, no, not a good sign for no, success.
0: No, definitely. Um, you know, I know you guys always talk about the uh, foot in the door thing. Um, that doesn't really come up in my interviews uh, too much, but that would certainly be a red flag to me. Um and I, you know, as far as like the informational interviews, I, I think you're right. I think it's an opportunity to, um, you know, I, I think you should go in there and kind of under do your research and understand, um, you know, uh, the journey of the person you're talking to and kind of like what they do and just be able to ask and form uh, intelligent questions based on based on that.
1: Yeah, that drives me nuts when you have an informational interview. And they come just like with no agenda, because I always said, like, why do you want to talk to that person, right? Yeah. Like, if, if you're going to ask for someone's time, have a reason and a goal in mind. To, to you could start the conversation by outlining that goal. Versus, so yeah, just like tell me about your time at DraftKings. I'm like, yeah, really? <laughs> that's, that's what you want to know? Like, okay. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's for me, it's 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 people are willing to invest their time into you you should take the time on the flip side to research, like you mentioned and come prepared with a a full on reason of why we're having this conversation, but approach it. Like it's a real interview to to impress us, right? Like come come fully stocked, come with those really good elevator pitches. And, and I think, so that's always, I always ask our guests, this: like, what do you hear from folks? Do you you ever ask the question, like, why do you want to work in sports? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, certainly. Um, It's a good question.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I was going to ask you, so you've been in the business now 15 years, 16 years. What has changed about it's been the most rewarding part of being in the industry that's evolved for you over the last 15 seasons.
0: Oh boy. Um, So I would say the things, you know, my career has evolved obviously. So I've taken on more responsibility and again, going from a position where, uh, you're only worried about yourself and you're just chasing a number every day to a position where quite honestly, you have to be on 24 uh, seven because you are a role model. Um, you know, people are watching you and, and seeing how, how you react to certain things. Um, but just, you know, kind of evolving into um, a position that I have to worry about other people's success before I worry about my own success. So um in just running a program. So it's just much more encompassing than than just worrying about myself. As far as the industry in itself, you know, I think the biggest changes I've seen over the last 15 years would be, you know, obviously data and analytics. That's a big uh big area right now. But it wasn't so much, you know, when you I just stole started. my next
1: just stole my next yeah. question, but keep going.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean we have an entire BI department now, which we didn't have up until a few years ago. So we Definitely have a strong emphasis on uh, collecting data, collect uh, using that data to make decisions. Um, you know, as far as for my team goes, it, we're looking at that personalized data. So, you know, who are we going to target for touch points? Uh, who are we going to solicit for sales? Is someone at risk? Uh, what is someone's preferences? You know, what's their favorite player? Uh, when's their birthday? Um, just so we can kind of be more strategic with our touch points. That was not a thing uh, when I first started. I think the other thing is just how much like content has grown. We have an entire like digital team right now. We produce so much content and obviously we get that, you know, sponsored. It's a, it's a sponsorable asset. When I, you know, we have camera guys, um, a ton of creative people in our office. We didn't have any of that when I first started. So, you know, those things, those things are, are ways it's evolved. And then just, just technology in general. Uh, like I said, there was no such thing as CRM. So just CRM makes life, life easier for sales and service reps. And you know, we have when it's when it's time for our renewal campaign, we we have uh you know renewal dashboards and data at our disposal so that we're we're targeting uh the right people.
1: So you you kind of just touched on how you guys are using data, but what that that I can't agree more, like the people the the evolution of a front office of when we started, uh when you and I only started a year and a half apart has changed so dramatically of what we had at our fingertips. I mean, you used to stick our finger in the air, right? Like, oh, it costs this. Uh, we yeah. think, <laughs> like, oh, here we go. Okay, sounds good. Let's move <laughs> forward. Um, and now we have literally people who were, who went to MIT telling us, oh, no, hey, hey, dum-dums, this is how you really should be doing it. Um, what, what should a younger person, like kind of, what skill set should they anticipate needing to have to apply data on their day-to-day job, whether it be under your department or sales or... Or marketing like what are you seeing what are you guys doing that's front of the line uh in terms of how you're making your approach to to your day-to-day but also from a holistic picture of setting your overall strategy
0: yeah i mean it, it's just so um again what we're trying to do on my team anyway is we are trying to make that experience to seem very individualized very personalized so Again, we're looking more at that personalized data so that we're reaching out, um, you know, we know everyone's favorite player, for example. We're going to be doing a player meet and greet next week, a virtual player meet and greet with Robert Williams. Who are we going to reach out to for that? We're going to look at people who, who has Robert Williams listed as their favorite player, and we're going to target those people because that touch point is going to be more impactful for them. Um Birth dates are a big thing because then we can recognize people on their birthday, but it's also, it also gives, uh, builds up our database a little bit for our sponsor team. You know, when they're looking for a certain demo, we can go to them, you know, with the birthday uh, we want to know how someone gets to the game. You know, are they driving? Are they taking the train? Are they taking Uber? Cause then again, we can customize benefits based on that. Um, you know, it's like I said, it's mostly personalized data for us. But then we're also looking at, um, you know, that's touchpoint fulfillment. We're also looking at data to determine, like, forecast, to forecast our uh, our renewal likelihood for people. So, you know, we're looking at things such as tenure. Um, we're looking at ticket utilization. Um, we're looking at uh, how often they utilize our touchpoints, how engaged they are. And we're taking all of this information and we're basically, you um, Assigning a risk score to them, so that we know, okay, the, these people, these people are like the low-hanging fruit. Um, they're still going to get a great experience and great benefits, but we prob- we may have to pay more attention to these other people and figure out what's going on with them, and 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 just you know use a little bit more time and energy uh, to convert these people into renewals.
1: It's so funny, all the stuff you just listed, because I'm thinking back there. None of that was around 10 years ago. It was just not even a thought in our minds.
0: And like with data, it's like in my, again, I'll speak for my department. Uh, We do look at it. It's not the be all end all. Uh, Certainly it's not the be all end all. We, we put a lot of, um, you know, we always say this, um, whatever the rep tells us that overrides the data. So if all of our data is saying, like, this person is at risk, but the rep says, no, no, this person is good, that person is no longer at risk. So we, we do look at the data, but there are other factors. You know, another factor we look at is we do a lot of surveying. So our data, you know, um, you know may say that someone is at, at risk or, or, or not at risk for that matter. It may say that they're not at risk. But we'll ask the question, you know, how likely are you to return? as a season ticket member. And if that person says, you know, I'm not likely at all, even if our data says we feel good about this person, that overrules the data. And and on the flip side, if that person says, yes, I'm coming back, and our data says they're not coming back, we're taking the person's word and and they are not at risk anymore. So we do look at data, but there's a lot of like rep input and customer input as well.
1: That's so refreshing to hear that you guys aren't just like, oh, no, this is what it says, this is what we do. Like so many companies have gotten I call it paralysis by analysis where you take out the human nature. Like our business is so unique and sports is so different. Like fans are insane, right? You guys deal with insanity every day. Like fans are, that's what they're called. Fans are fanatics. Their survey, (laughs) their surveys might be so off the wall. Like they're angry, but they're the most passionate people in the world that are going nowhere because your rep knows that like it's, you kind of have to use common sense sometimes in our business beyond just saying, Oh no, this is what the data says. Let's call it a day and move on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we usually uh, in the hierarchy is what is the rep telling me? What is the customer telling me? What is our, what is our data say? And that's kind of like the hierarchy of what overrules what.
1: So I'm assuming like the most of us, you just probably went through the hardest last seven to 12 months of your career. Would that be fair to say?
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely some challenges for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, just a little bit um, and still going. Uh, so for the, for the young folks out there who are, I'm sure you're talking to them on informational interviews all the time about this. What can I be doing? How can I, what should I do? Should I go to grad school? There's no jobs. What, what am I supposed to do? What would you tell them? Like, what's your advice for someone that's sitting on the sidelines right now, but wants to get into this business?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very good question. I, I would say just use the time to get better, however you want to get better. There's linked, again, informational interviews. I'll say this, Chris. When the pandemic started, I was getting blown up with um, people looking to talk uh, about uh, you know younger, typically people early in their career or people that just graduated college. It has dropped off tremendously. You know, I've, I, it, it was like every day for a few months after the pandemic started and I very rarely get them now. So I would say uh, I would tell people to continue to uh, do the informational interviews and build contacts. Um, I had a few people early on in the pandemic who, you know, they weren't asking for a job and they weren't necessarily looking for a job, but I, I felt so good. I personally felt so good after the, the conversation with them that I have These particular people in the back of my mind that whenever we're able to hire again, I'm going to reach out, you know, and I'm going to say, you know, hey, we had a good conversation seven, eight months ago. Uh, Would you be any interested in this opportunity? So I I think just trying to connect with people um, in the industry is good, but there's other ways you can do it, too. You, You could do grad school. One of my one of my uh, friends in the industry who works for the New York Knicks is taking grad school courses right now because because he has extra time. He's he's getting better. You know you got to keep developing yourself. Books. You know I read a ton of books. I probably read a book a week, but that's going to make somebody better. All these podcasts. You know just all this information that's out there. I think you just have to continue to get better. And if there's a job opportunity and it's not really in sports. Take it, you know, like any experience is better than no experience. So if you wanted to get in sales or service for a sports team, for example, you know, take a sales or service uh, job in a tech company that might be hiring right now. You can always come back uh, once once the jobs start opening in sports. I will say this. I've, I've noticed that on LinkedIn in particular, I am seeing a lot of teams posting positions right now. Uh so I, I do think that people are starting to hire – a lot of teams are starting to hire again. Uh, so I would encourage people just to kind of, um, you know, just be on the lookout.
1: Yeah, it seems like we've we've quasi-turned that corner where the people are more bullish about yep. fans coming back at some point in 2021. I mean, I we definitely hope for everyone's sake that we are the first sport with you guys to start seeing fans towards the end of your season, our opening day-ish, <clears throat> and then transitioning through the summer to hopefully – Come 21-22 season for you guys, where the garden's packed again. Like that's yeah. that would be good for all everyone that's listening on this podcast yeah. and for you and I individually ourselves.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I'm, and I'm very optimistic. I, I told you this, you know, before we even talked. Um, I'm not just saying it. Uh, this has been obviously a long, dark tunnel since March, but I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm a believer in these vaccines, and I do think the distribution is going to pick up. And I do believe that uh, the Celtics will have fans back at TD Garden before this year. And, you know, for what it's worth, I think you guys will have fans as well.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's 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 all that we need right now. Is that light like, at the end of the tunnel? Because like to your point for a while, and this is what we would tell folks, too, is like even for the people that are in the industry, it's not an easy time. And I guess that's a good question for you. Like, What did you do with your typically, I would imagine, younger staff to keep morale up in a time that was just so uncertain?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it has been uh, uncertain and there's definitely been some uh, ups and downs for sure throughout the pandemic. I think the most important thing is continuing to remain optimistic. You know, you, you have to be rational too. It's not obviously all like rainbows and butterflies, but you yeah. have to show some sense of optimism um, that, that this is going to end. At some point, this is just going to be a little blip in your life and you're going to look back at it and say, I I can't believe we dealt with, how the heck did we get through that time? So it's really me just trying to keep it lighthearted, but it's also just really understanding your staff in like what their personal situation now is right now and what some of their struggles may be. You know, like some, some people may be working at home with young children like I am, you know, I have a three-year-old. And that's a challenge in itself, right? And some people may be working remotely by themselves, isolated in an apartment, you know, with, you know, very little human contact and that's a struggle. Um, But I think for me, it's just a lot of checking in with my group. Um, We've built such such good relationships over the years that they're comfortable confiding to me when something's bothering them. So I'm just there... As a sounding board, I don't always have the answers, but I'm going to give them um, advice and I'm going to be there for them. And if I notice something looks off with somebody, uh, whether it be like in a meeting or or, or whatever, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll I'll start the conversation, you know, and and I'll try to get them to open up. And, you know, I've had struggles. I've had struggles over the last, you know, eight months as well. I'm no different than anyone else. So I try to share those struggles with my team. To to you know show that vulnerability as a leader, I think that's important um, because then it makes them feel more comfortable. So you know that's kind of how I've been handling it, and just um, you know just just again trying to remain remain optimistic and, and upbeat and, um, and and remain
1: close. I love that. That's, that's that's what sets the tone at the top. Yep. The NBA uh, is probably, if you were to ask most most fans, one of the most progressive leagues we've got going out there. You guys just always seem to be ahead of the curve on most things. And again, starts at the top commissioner. Where do you see the NBA going? Like what's the future? And I, it doesn't have to be exact. This is more of like yeah. you thinking like you've been, you've seen it all now, yeah. 15 years. It's, it's yeah. changed dramatically. What what's next for the NBA? What big thing is. So, next for the NBA?
0: so, all right. So I'll answer that, but I'll preface it by saying this, the, these are my own personal opinions. It's no insider information. It's literally just my own gut feeling. So there's no credibility behind any of this. Stuff.
1: <laughs> That's this good thing. to know, David. That you uh, have no credibility. But, <laughs> just throw uh, it.
0: <laughs> but what I what I see uh, into the future is, I think there'll definitely be like changes on how we consume the product. Like you're seeing it right now, a lot of people are cutting the cord with cable, um, and they're streaming our games and they're watching our games, you know, online or wherever. So I think that trend will continue. So I, I don't know what the future of like the cable networks, uh, carrying these, these games is going to look like, you know, again, if we look out very into the, into the distant future, I, I think we'll, we'll continue to see changes in how we consume. I think that sports betting is becoming obviously uh, really big in, in this country. And I, I do see a situation at some point uh, where I personally believe that uh, we'll have that in arenas for people. Uh, Again, my, my own personal opinion on that, but, but I could, I could see, I think there's like a lot of opportunity there with sports betting and, you know, quite honestly, when we're selling tickets, we're competing with, you know other forms of entertainment but we're also competing against the the luxury of just watching the game at home so i i think just adding adding a draw to that live experience um is important and i think like again like sports betting would be would be a draw you know if you could go into the arena and place a bet on that game while you're in the arena i think that would help you know the other thing i think you'll start seeing is um you know more more entertainment districts, you know, more neighborhoods being developed around these arenas to attract more people. I, th- I think that's a big initiative. You know, we're doing it here at TD Garden. We uh, developed the Hub-On Causeway. The entire area around the garden has been redesigned. There's restaurants, bars, hotels, um, a movie theater, a uh, grocery store. So it really is becoming, um, you know, you can come out and it, it, it's more than just going to the game. You know, th- th- there's more to it. So, you know, those are those are some things I can see um, becoming more commonplace in the future.
1: Yeah, no, the technology, it's funny, the, the, the draw of the game is almost the best things ever happened for us. And this is going to be weird to say is the fact that people haven't been allowed to go to events for so long, the pent-up demand is going to be <laughs> off the charts for people yeah. to get back out. Like, oh, yeah, I liked it on TV, but I really miss going to the garden yeah. and seeing the place rocking. Like, right, there's yeah. just... There's something about that of what we like to congregate as, as a society for these type of events. Um, the other thing I think, and I always, I always think the NBA will be first to do this. The NFL keeps kicking it around. I feel like the NBA will be first with international expansion, just because oh, yeah. it seems like it's the most global sport beyond soccer, yeah. uh, and it just seems like you guys in that in that league would be ripe for starting a, a not even like a team, but almost another league where like you actually have a World championship of the NBA that's here versus the NBA that might end up in, in Europe at one point. I,
0: you know, what I, I think that's a great point. I, I could totally see something like that happening. I, I had never thought of that actually, but but I don't I like steal that. my idea. I, I, I like that idea. It does seem something like the NBA would do, you know, obviously, to your point, um, it's huge on an international level. And we've done it with the G League recently. You know, we've kind of formed another league. We have the WNBA, so so why not? Why not build up a league uh, internationally? I thought at first you were saying like maybe a team out there, uh, which could cause you know it, it, with it's battle. just so yeah.
1: hard. Yeah, it's so yeah. hard. Like they t- keep talking about London, and like it's just yeah. it, the logistics yeah. are tough. Um, I think the other one of my solution is <laughs> a little bit easier <laughs> to pull off. But from a sport perspective, football can't do that. Uh, Baseball probably couldn't do it right now. Hockey, hockey maybe because they do actually have a massive. But the NBA, I mean, you'd have you'd have China too. Like it's it's not that it wouldn't be a lack of interest from a basketball perspective around the world.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're right on that. So So
1: one easy last layup, and this probably is a layup for you because I, how long you've been with the team and what's happened during the team. But what is your what is your favorite memory so far in sports?
0: Um I mean I guess it's easy to say when we won the title. Yeah, that's the <laughs> <Like>, layup, right? <laughs> the cookie cutter answer I guess in 2008. Um obviously that's always going to be an experience that I'll remember, you know, just being there uh for the first title in 20 years, beating the Lakers, the after party, the duck boat parade, but uh, honestly a lot of my memories um are it's just with the people I've worked with. I've, I've formed so many lifelong relationships with the people who are either still at the Celtics or have passed through. Um, I always say like, you know, two, two of the guys that were in my wedding party, I met at the Celtics, you know? So just really, I think what keeps a lot of people at the Celtics is just everybody, you know, it's just the environment and the people, you know, the people that are there. So a lot of my memories will just be tied to experiences with those people that, you know, may not have even happened in the office necessarily.
1: No, it really is true. Like, and people always ask, what's the best part of our industry? It, it's, it's the people. It's always yeah. the people. Yeah. Well, David, this has been fantastic. Uh, I, I knew our first call would lead to a great interview and then it's not really interview, just a conversation. And how can folks reach out or find you? Cause I know like you mentioned you're passionate about helping some of the younger brethren come up to this industry.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um well you can email me. Uh my email, my email is uh dcohen at celtics.com. So first first initial last name at celtics.com or you can shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Um you know uh, I believe it's uh linkedin.com uh, David Andrew Cohen all one word um but you could just search david cohen boston celtics and you'll find me so you know linkedin or email uh and i'm more than happy you know I'll, I'll definitely reply to you and i'm more than happy to connect
1: that's awesome that's always it's always great to hear when, and that we we emphasize there's so many people in our industry willing to help so that's why we encourage folks to reach out but thank you so much for your time hey good good luck the rest of the way this season and then uh don't be a stranger
0: definitely chris i had a great time and uh, thanks for having me
1: thanks david